Alrighty. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. I can't believe this is our last night. I'm just passing out my cards. It's going to feel a little nostalgic. I just wanted to show y'all. And of course, I just passed out a handful. But that that those are that's the amount of references that passages that we read over the past 12 weeks just in this class. That's pretty impressive. So anyway, that's why I kind of like collecting it back. I'm like, hey, that's a lot of scripture. So we're going to go ahead and start with our review from last week and jump right in to the last two stops for our highway of life. Um, Last week we began with Peter and uh, we talked about Peter. We talked about a lot of things about Peter, but of all the things that marked his life, one of the most significant was, what was that? Oh, is that the pencil sharpener? We're old school around here. Is that next door? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Anyway, of all the things that we talked about Peter, one of the most significant things that marked his life was he was the first disciple to correctly identify Jesus as the son of the living God, the Messiah. For Peter, there were two events, key events. The first was the day of Pentecost, the day when the promised Holy Spirit came just as Jesus had promised, and he came in a big way at that one moment, but then the glorious part about the day of Pentecost was that he would continue to come into the life of the believer at the point of salvation, seal that individual as belonging to Christ until Christ's return. And then the second key event for Peter's life was Apostle to the Jews. Even though he initially ministered to Jews and Gentiles early on, right after Jesus' ascension, God ultimately called Peter to minister to the circumcision or to the Jews or Israel. And that was to be his main calling. I am so sorry. Let me turn that off. Um, I guess you shouldn't send me a text message when I'm teaching. Um, Golly, man. It's like distraction 101. Who is that guy on the back row? And who let him back in here? I do not know. The key relationship for Peter is that God always spares a faithful remnant of his people throughout history from from Abraham, from the initiation, the beginning of the Jewish race, till now, till present and even future, God always preserves a remnant of believing Jews. Uh, Even though Israel had turned their back on God, they had rejected God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, God had not rejected Israel. He had not turned his back on Israel. And he was still pursuing them. And one evidence of this is in the fact that he commissioned Peter to to minister specifically to the nation Israel. God is still the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is still the apple of his eye. And he will maintain that believing remnant until he returns in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant one day future. So... There's always a faithful remnant of Jews, despite what Israel as a nation decides to do. From there, we move to Paul. Paul was initially known as Saul, and he was Jew among Jews. He described himself. He gave this huge, uh, his uh, curriculum vitae, his, uh, his resume. He was a Jew among Jews, yet chief persecutor of the church. The key events in Paul's life, the first was his conversion on the road to Damascus, one miraculous encounter with the risen Lord and Paul, this man Saul at the time, went from being the single greatest threat to the early church to one of the most effective 
and impactful missionaries for Christ the world has probably ever known. So a, a, an amazing encounter with God. The second key event in the relationship in the uh, um, for the person of Paul was that he was apostle to the Gentiles. Just as Peter had been called to minister to the Jews, to the circumcision, so Paul had been called by God to minister to Gentiles, non-Jews. And the interesting thing about Paul is not only was he interested in his audience, these uh, Gentile, Gentiles becoming believers, he wasn't just satisfied with them hearing the gospel, he wanted them to grow in their faith. He wanted to build them up for them to be not just baby Christians, but mature believers. And so much of the doctrine that we get uh, for the basis of our faith comes from those epistles, those letters that Paul wrote to the early church. So he was very dedicated to not only spreading the gospel, but seeing believers it, uh, come into maturity in their faith. So that was a, a really important part of his ministry. The key relationships here, too, for Paul, first was the dispensation of grace. And we talked about how a dispensation is how God chooses to interact with humankind during a specific time in history. And with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, a new dispensation was ushered in. No longer was man under the law. No longer did God use the law as the standard in his dealings with mankind. Now grace was the basis on, by which God dealt with humankind. And it became very clear that salvation was by grace through faith and that our works had nothing to do with it. This dispensation of grace was not just for the Jews. It was, it was worldwide and to Jews and Gentiles alike. And we still exist today in this dispensation of grace. And the very next dispensation that's yet to come, we'll talk about tonight, is the millennial kingdom. So we will be here in this same disposition, uh, dispensation until the millennial kingdom. The second key relationship here for Paul was the body of Christ. The idea of the church becoming the body of Christ, also called the bride of Christ. And there's a focus shift for the latter part of the New Testament from the nation Israel, much more to the church, the body of Christ, and their roles, and um, how God uses them, and how God, how God functions, how God creates the ability for all the members of this body to build one another up. Each has their own gifts, each has their own abilities, and they utilize those for the building up of the body. And so it's not every man for himself, Lone Ranger Christians, um, God had a plan, and th there's a reason why he called it a body, to remind us that we are to work together. So what is the body of Christ? It is the church worldwide. Whenever I say the church universal, that sounds so like pagan to me for some reason, but made up worldwide of true believers, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who is the rightful head of this church? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the head of this church. He alone has the right to be called the head of this church. And membership into this body comes only through faith in Christ. There's no other way to get into the body. I've heard it said before, I'm sure you folks have heard it, that God doesn't have spiritual grandchildren. He only has spiritual children. And it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that is the only way we get into this body. So it's not a country club or an exclusive group or um, civic organization. The only way we get into the body of Christ is through salvation. From there, we go to new material for tonight. Our last two little 
pauses along our journey from Genesis to Revelation. I, I can't even believe that we're here. These last two to me are very exciting, uh, but I do need to kind of give a little bit of a warning. The last two of these stops along our highway of life present a little bit of a challenge when you're trying to utilize a survey format. It's a lot of information in a short amount of time. You folks already know I talk way too fast. The other issue is a lot of us have lots of questions and we're very curious about end times. Fortunately, God answers a lot of our questions in his word. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things he doesn't tell us. So some folks may leave here tonight going, you know what, I got more questions now than I had when I walked in the room. And that kind of bugs me, but that's just kind of how it is. So we, we study God's word and we glean out what he has told us and the rest we basically have to just wait to find out. Um, so when it comes to end times and prophecy, there's a lot of curiosity. But um, anyway, I, my, my warning, I guess, is take what you can from tonight. And then if you have interest in this area, I would implore you to do your own study, consult biblical, solid Bible expositors, also your pastor, and there are even people within our body here at Wake Chapel that have done an awful lot of study in this area. One person that comes to mind is uh, Rick Powell, and so if you have other questions or comments or want some good books to read, if this kind of piques your interest, then certainly pursue those avenues for more information. I do not claim to be an expert in this field. But I'm going to share what I have studied, uh, and hopefully it will be meaningful. So, the first individual that we meet tonight <clears throat> is the Antichrist. Now, before we get, go any farther, there is a lot of debate about where the body of Christ, the church, will be when the Antichrist is revealed, or announced, or comes to light. So, we're going to talk about that for just a second. Some folks believe that the church will be here when the Antichrist is revealed. And because the Antichrist and the seven-year tri uh, tribulation are inextricably connected, intertwined, those positions are often called mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. Now, before everybody's eyes glaze over, we're going to talk in just a few minutes about the tribulation, the great tribulation, a seven-year period of unparalleled judgment on the earth by God. And the Antichrist will be a key figure during that. So if an individual believes that the church, the body of Christ, believers, us, are here for half of that seven-year period, the first three and a half years, or all seven years, then they would be considered mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. Does that make sense? And folks who hold to this view, there are a couple of references that they sort of base this view on. Matthew, if you want to jot these down, you can. Uh, Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29 to 31, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3, and please don't try to spell out Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3, and Revelation 24 to 5, Revelation 24 to 5, and we're going to talk about at least one of these passages tonight. So the, the, we, we sometimes call them the mid-trivers and the post-trivers. They use these passages to support their view. However, at Wake Chapel, our statement of faith states that we hold to a pre-trib view, which means pre-tribulation. We believe that the Bible teaches that the church, the body of Christ, will be taken away, raptured up to heaven before the tribulation begins, before the Antichrist is revealed. And we're going to talk some more about that tonight. So if I say, okay, we as a, as a body of believers here believe that we are pre-tribulation, the rapture has to come first, 
and uh, we're not going to be here for the tribulation. So that brings up two questions in my mind. Well, what in the world's a rapture? So the rapture is when Jesus calls believers off of this earth to meet him in the clouds. The dead, those who have died, the dead in Christ, those who have died as believers, their soul right now is with the Lord immediately. Their body is in the ground. When Jesus, when, when the rapture takes place, their body will be resurrected, and those of us that are still alive, breathing upright, will be taken next, and we will meet the Lord in the clouds. This is a relatively quiet event. The only ones that hear the trumpet call of God are believers. There's not a lot of fanfare. There's not a lot of trumpets blowing for everyone. There's not a lot of, hey, here he comes. This is a quiet event that we as believers hear. It takes place in an instant. And the most awesome thing about this rapture is that it is imminent. Nothing else has to happen in the course of human history before this rapture takes place. When whoever, whomever that individual is that accepts Christ and the Lord says, okay, that's it, I'm ready, I'm bringing the church home, that is it. It could happen before we walk out of this room tonight. Uh, to me, that, that gives me chills. So it is eminent. Nothing else. There aren't any signs that have to fall into place. And so a lot of people say, oh, it's going to be a long time before the church leaves because all this stuff has to happen. It could happen any time. Who has 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17? I do. Okay. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. Thank you. So you get the picture. The Lord is in heaven. He's with the souls of those who are believers who have already passed on. Their bodies are here. And those bodies are resurrected first, then those of us who are alive and still remain here will be caught up next. And again, we will hear that trumpet call of God. Who has 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52? Anybody have yeah. that? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall uh, be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Thank you. So again, a trumpet sound, and there will be a transforming of our bodies. We will receive glorified bodies at this point, as after the rapture takes place. I've seen, heard tell of churches who have 1 Corinthians 15, 51 uh, painted over their um, nursery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, anyway, just a little uh, Bible humor there for you. Do you realize the impact of all of God's children being taken off this earth at one single moment? I was, we were having a conversation with family last night, and one of my family members said something to the effect of, 
the percentage of actual believers in relation to the world's population is so small, I don't think it's going to be that impactful. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. I disagree. I think it's going to be crazy after that. And, you know, I think about even in a small town like Fuquay, planes, trains, automobiles, unmanned, teachers suddenly gone from classrooms. I mean, as a nurse, I'm thinking people in the middle of a surgical procedure, the, the surgeon could be a believer, gone, in the, has a heart in his hand, gone, in the middle of a procedure. Military leaders, government leaders, yes, there could actually be believers in government. <laughs> uh, government believers, you know, diplomats, dignitaries, all over the world that are engaged in whatever it is they do day in and day out. Moms, dads, boys, girls, in day-to-day -day life, gone in an instant. I think it's going to be chaos. I've also watched the Left Behind movies, so, you know, in my head, that could probably fuel some of that. <clears throat> but um, I think about planes big time. That's true. I'm well. Yeah. So... Do you have comments? I remember the uh, program on the Book of Joel when right. uh, Joel and them were saying that that Europe probably wouldn't be affected as mm -hmm. bad as a lot of areas. It kind of shocks you to hear stuff like right. that. Right. Well, the next, my next point is think about the impact this will have on people that we know and love, our friends, mm -hmm. our family, our neighbors, our coworkers our fellow church members that may not be believers at this moment and may be left behind and immediately they realize I have missed the boat so yeah my kids were even talking about you know going to wake Christian my daughter Joy looked at me and said there don't be kids sitting in my classroom that are um, yeah there could be you know for sure so just the idea of this event I mean we will not be worried we'll be in the presence of Jesus but there's going to be a lot of aftermath that goes on immediately after that. And we'll talk a little bit more later about what happens to those people that say, oops, I missed the boat. So the first point of this was that being pre-trib, believing that the church will be taken off the earth prior to the tribulation, is that the rapture takes place first. And so we explain what that rapture is. The second point is, why do we think this? Why do, what, what, what grounds do we have as believers to say, hey, other than saying, I don't want to live through the tribulation, what grounds do I have biblically to say, I think this is what's going to happen? And so we've got a couple of passages. Who has 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10? I do. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in you had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Thank you. So the key passage there, the key phrase is, Jesus, who rescues us, this is being written by Paul to believers, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Who has 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to 11? Okay, Kitty. Well, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with you. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Thank you. So, the, Kitty's translation was a little bit different than the New American Standard, but mine says, for God has not destined us for wrath. We were not, he is not intended for us to go, to suffer the wrath that is to come. The, the last part of this passage, I think, is interesting. Paul is exhorting these believers in Thessalonica to encourage one another with this message. You were not destined for the period of wrath, the time of wrath, so encourage one another. Let me just say, 
as a believer, it's a whole lot easier for me to encourage someone else if I believe I'm not going to be living through the wrath that is to come than if I think I am going to be living through the wrath, the wrath that is to come. So to me, that's, you know, Paul's like saying, it's okay, people. You're, you're going to be with the Lord. It's going to be okay. And then Revelation 3.10, who has that? Oh, you got the show. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The hour of trial, or the hour of testing, I will keep you from the hour of testing, which is to come upon the whole world. So uh, these are just a couple of passages that we use as uh, support for the position that the church will be raptured up before the tribulation begins. Does that make sense? I mean, again, you folks can do more study, too. So who in the world is this Antichrist? Well, the Antichrist is a person. But before we talk about what kind of person he is, there are some Bible um, expositors and teachers who believe that there, ha that there is and has been this spirit of the Antichrist that has existed from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden until now. And it's kind of like, remember as we've gone through our highway of life, there have been times we pointed out a type of Christ. For example, the ram caught in the thicket when Isaac was to be sacrificed by his father Abraham. That ram was a type of Christ because he took Isaac's place on the altar. The high priests would go once a year into the Holy of Holies and make atonement covering for sin for the nation Israel once and for all for that year. That was a type of Christ, kind of symbolizing what Christ would one day do once and for all with his death on the cross. So these expositors think, believe that there are basically like types of antichrist all throughout scripture and even possibly in the more modern world and so examples that are sometimes given Cain the first murderer Ham son of one of the three sons of Noah the first sodomite Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and would not let the Israelites leave Egypt also slaughtered a whole bunch of baby Hebrew boys in an effort to keep the Israelites put uh, Herod the Great also slaughtered a whole bunch of Hebrew baby boys trying to extinguish an infant king that had been born. And so it goes on. Uh, Antiochus, um, a, a Greek leader who comes on in, onto the scene and defiles Herod's temple by slaughtering a pig in the Holy of Holies and erecting a statue of Zeus in the temple. Who else? You guys can name these. Nero, Stalin, Hitler, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein. These are some that folks say they almost exemplified sort of the spirit of the Antichrist, opposing everything that is God or that God stands for, basically. So we could say, yes, there is a spirit of the Antichrist throughout Scripture. However, this Antichrist is a living, breathing human being, flesh and blood, given supernatural power by Satan himself. So just as Jesus had supernatural power to, to perform signs and wonders because he was God's son, he was God himself, so the Antichrist will have power imbued by Satan. So who has 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, two, actually I changed this on your notes. Your notes, your notes say um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4, change that to 2, 1 to 10 because there was a there are a couple of verses at the end of that passage I wanted to touch on very briefly, so extend that in your notes. And then who has that one? Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure 
or be disturbed either by this a spirit or a message or a letter as from us and is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the prophecy is first, and the man of lawlessness be revealed, and the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what is what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. So Thank you. That, I think that was the longest <laughs> one for the night. So this, here's the scene. This is Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonians. In the first letter, we've read a lot of the passages from 1 Thessalonians, he's explained to them about the dead in Christ. Know those that you love who are believers that, that have died. They're going to be with us in heaven. And he's explained the rapture, and he's kind of laid all that groundwork. Well, in his second letter, he's addressing an issue. The, the Thessalonians have looked around, and they know the rapture is supposed to take place. They know that there is this um, day of the Lord, this period of testing and, and of uh, judgment that's coming. But they're looking around at all the persecution that they're undergoing, and they're like, we think we missed the rapture. We think this is the day of the Lord. This is the judgment that is coming that we've been warned about, and we're in the midst of it. To make matters worse, that very first, or one of the first phrases in that passage, basically Paul says, calm down, calm your spirit, don't have a fit. But it talks about how they received a letter as if from us. So false teachers were among the Thessalonians saying, yep, you're right. You're in the day of the Lord, and we're, we're, we're just letting you know this message is from Paul. So false teachers were spreading this, claiming to be from Paul. So Paul says, okay, look, guys, calm down. You know I taught you about the rapture and that the rapture is going to take place first. The Antichrist, or here, the man of lawlessness, will not appear until after the rapture takes place. So calm down. And he also tells them, that he talks about later on in this passage about this restrainer. I think this is amazing. Um, I did some study about this, and the expositors have some differing views, but the, the widely held position is that this restrainer is God the Holy Spirit. We know that, that um, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and from go the Garden of Eden until now, he has had much power and much reign, but he has not had complete power, or com uh, he's, he has not been without restraint. God the Holy Spirit has restrained Satan to a degree and will continue to do so until after the first three and a half years of the tribulation. After that, that first three and a half years, the restrainer, the restrainer is removing that restraint and Satan has at, has at it, basically, for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So does that make sense? Satan would love nothing more than to bring about his plan right here and now. 
but it's not God's time yet. So God the Holy Spirit holds him back, so to speak, until God says, okay, now you can have your chance, which will be the latter half of the tribulation. So I just think that's really interesting. Another role of God the Holy Spirit that we don't hear about very much. Who This passage tells us not only about the Thessalonians themselves, calm down, the rapture's still going to happen, you're not going to see the man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, quite yet, it's not time, but this passage also tells us about the Antichrist. He will be the son of destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He will take his seat in God's temple. His seat, like it's his. Um, He will display himself as being God empowered by Satan to perform signs and false wonders, and he will deceive others with wickedness. So he doesn't deceive with goodness. He, I mean, he, like, uses wickedness to blind people. We're going to read a passage in just a second that talks about, how, I mean, it, ex, it explains how blind people are going to be because of this, um, the wickedness that this man possesses. So does that make sense? This is a living, breathing human being. That's the take-home message. It's not just a spirit or just a, you know, anyone who opposes God or anyone who does not proclaim Jesus as Lord is the Antichrist. This is one individual in time, okay? And the key event here, we move on quickly, is the seven-year tribulation period. Seven years of judgment reigned upon the earth. The first three and a half years, there will be this feeling or sense of peace it will seem like things are actually getting better. The Antichrist will come on the scene and somehow create uh, harmony between Arabs and Jews, Muslims and Jews. And there could be like the beginning of a third temple in Jerusalem. And everyone's going to say, oh, look at this. This guy's awesome. He is bringing peace to the Middle East. No, this first three and a half years lays the groundwork for what the last three and a half years will bring, unimaginable evil and unrestrained power. This is the time when the Holy Spirit removes his restraining power and Satan goes to town. Literally, all heck will break loose. So I'm going to read this passage because it's a little bit long and I want to annotate like two things as I go through. So this is Revelation 13, 1 through 8. Alrighty? So listen to this. This is basically further description of the Antichrist and what he will do when he's here. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, that's Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if he, it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. At some point during the Antichrist's reign, during the seven-year tribulation, he is going to appear to have died, to have received a death blow, and then he will come back to life. Just a sa- total sacrilege of what Jesus Christ did for us. And so... At this point, things really get crazy. So he appears to have been slain, a fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast, the Antichrist. They worshiped the dragon, Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words, blasphemies, 
and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So remember, that first 42 months, that first three and a half years, everything looks kind of cool. He's kind of chill. That last 42 months, he gets to do basically whatever he wants at Satan's behest. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So you may say, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute. The believers, the church has already been raptured. We're going to talk about this in a second. But there will be those who accept Christ during the tribulation period. Those who realize, oops, we missed the boat. Now I realize Jesus is Lord, and they will become believers during the tribulation. And so one of the chief aims of this Antichrist is to make war with those saints and to completely overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. What does that sound like? Authority over every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. Government-wise, what does that sound like? Yeah. Uh, one world government. You got it. One world. Harkening back to like the Roman Empire. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. What does that sound like? One world religion. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So basically this passage says this guy is going to be evil unimagined. All those people that I mentioned as being horrible, evil throughout scripture and even in more modern times, all of those individuals rolled into one will still not equal the, the pure evil of this individual. And everything that God stands for, he stands against. His goal will be basically during that last three and a half years, anyone who is saved to annihilate them, to martyr them, to behead them. Um, and those whose names are not in the Lamb's Book of Life will be forced to take the mark um, of the beast. And so we're not going to get into all that, but this time period will be marked by one world government, one world religion, with the Antichrist at the head of both. And that key passage in, that, in this passage is, who will be able to wage war against him? Nobody. At that point, nobody will be able to wage war against the Antichrist. So clearly not something we want to be sticking around for. The key relationship here is uh, judgment, the judgment of the earth. God will unleash, it, unleash his judgment on the earth in seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. There is no way we have time to even delve into any of those, so I would uh, encourage you to look into that more. I did, uh, Lynn, didn't your class do the book on Revelation? Did, did it go into all that stuff? And kind of. A little bit. So that might be an, an option too. But the one thing I want to leave on before we move on to the next slide is amidst all of this judgment, the judgment this world has never seen, there's still mercy. As I mentioned before, there will be believers, people who come to Christ during this crazy, chaotic, evil time period that realize, I, I, I didn't do it beforehand. I didn't want to bow the knee. I didn't want to profess Jesus as Lord, but now I do. And there, many of those will lose their life. Some will not. Some will actually make it through the end of the tribulation period. And God will spare a remnant of believing Jews through the seven-year tribulation period. So even in the midst of this, you know, God could just be like, that's it. I'm done with every last one of you. Take the church. Blitz everybody else. That's not what he does. There's still mercy in the midst of judgment. And I think that's a mark of, of the God that we serve. And quickly, our last slide of the 12 weeks 
John's revelation of Christ. So this is the same John, a disciple, one of the sons of thunder, James and John, son of Zebedee, author of the book of John, the uh, gospel of John, John 1, 2, and 3, and uh, the book of Revelation. Now, a little pet peeve, if you read the first few verses of the book of Revelation, John was had been exiled to the island of Patmos. Most of the apostles by now had been martyred. But here's John, and they're like, you know... Let's just send this crazy old guy off to this island. He can't do anything for the cause of Christ over there on this island. No, God just decides to, you know, give him the entire revelation of what future is coming. But I think that's kind of funny. But um, if you read those first few verses, it says, John, I, John, it was on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit. I heard a noise. I turned, and I saw this vision. This is one revelation. This is not multiple revelations. So it drives me nuts when people say, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelations. It's not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's one big revelation. Does that make sense? So this is the one single revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to John on the island of Patmos. All right. And so John, very in very detailed fashion, as he was led by the Holy Spirit uh, to record this vision, lays out for us basically the events of the end times. And I am literally going to run through this list and make a few quick annotations. And again, if something catches your eye, please, this is when I just implore you over and over again to do your own study, because uh, we are just barely scratching the surface. So here's the sequence. Number one, the rapture of the church. We have talked about the rapture ad nauseum. I'm not going to go any further on that one. Next, the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment for believers. This is not... Jenny McCreary going up before the Lord, oh man, I know I lied and I cheated and I was prideful. This is not that kind of judgment. This is a, um, a doling out of rewards and crowns. This is not a, a, a time of shame and humility and, and um, regret. This is where we receive our rewards that we in turn lay at Jesus' feet. Does that make sense? So this is not, we, our sins have been forgiven. This is not that kind of, you know, put in the DVD and watch the reel of all the bad things I've done my entire life. That's not for believers. So the judgment seat of Christ. Next, the tribulation. So that's, we're up there. So meanwhile, back at the ranch, the tribulation, the seven-year judgment period with the appearance of the Antichrist. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation period is Christ's second coming. This is not when he meets us in the clouds, but when he comes all the way physically back to the earth. It is quiet, and as much as a thief in the night, what the rapture was, this is the exact opposite. So the rapture is quiet, happens in an instant, nobody knows when it's happening. There are, se there are sequences of events that lead up to Christ's coming. It is heralded, it is glorious, there is fanfare. Everybody knows Jesus is back on earth. Nobody's going to miss this. And so, in fact, we're told in Romans 14:1 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, whether willingly or unwillingly. Everyone at this point will realize, hey, this guy is Lord. Then, uh, at the second coming, Satan is bound for a thousand years. So Satan has had his little fun for the past three and a half years during the tribulation. Jesus comes back. We will be with him, and uh, he binds Satan for a thousand years. Then the millennial kingdom begins, the thousand-year reign. Jesus is on the throne, on David's throne, in the final fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And he is uh, reigning 
And this is where it gets a little interesting. I just, I'm kind of like, how is this even possible? At the end of the thousand year millennial kingdom, Satan has one last hoorah. He has one last revolt. Now, the crazy part of this is who joins him? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. I won't tell you that. Well, that's a little sneak peek. Anyway, so Satan has one last revolt, and then Satan is ultimately judged and cast into hell, followed by the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment for unbelievers. This is where unbelievers come before the Lord, and their name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they are cast into the lake of fire. So there will be weeping and wailing and shame and regret and, you know, all that stuff in that judgment seat. Um, so the great white throne judgment, and then eternity begins. Key event here, I just kind of pulled out of all those, this millennial <laughs> kingdom, this thousand-year reign of Christ. It is a physical, earthly reign. This is not some ethereal, we're, you know, strumming on harps, floating by on clouds, flapping our wings. We are physically here with Christ as he reigns on earth, the ultimate fulfillment, as I've said many times, of the Davidic covenant. Now, here's where it gets kind of strange. Remember I said there are people who come to Christ during the tribulation. They have physical bodies, men and women, physical bodies, old nature. They're not perfect. They're not glorified, um, sinful, but, but saved, okay? So kind of like we are right now. They will survive that seven-year period. Somehow they will keep their heads, literally, and they will not be um, martyred. Now, we come back with Jesus in glorified bodies. We enjoy this, seven, this uh, thousand-year reign of Christ. During that time, there are those who were still, still in human bodies that will procreate, that will have children over that thousand-year period. And some of those children will join Satan in his final revolt. How you could possibly make that decision after being in the presence of Jesus as Lord and Savior, reigning king, right there in your midst, I don't get it. But that's how depraved man is, men and women are. And so some of those children will join Satan in his final revolt. Of course, they will be judged just like the rest. And so it's just kind of weird to think about. We think about, I think in my head that, you know, once the tribulation's over, it's just all roses and unicorns and everything's happy and but you know what I'm saying, like it's going to be all wonderful, but there's still going to, there still be, sin will still have to be dealt with, which I just think is kind of ironic. But after Satan's last revolt, he is bound, unbelievers are judged, cast into hell, and then eternity begins. And then we don't have to worry about sin anymore. The key relationship here, obviously, one word, eternity. I barely even know what to say other than I think it's interesting that God, that the life that we are living right now is described as a vapor, a speck, something that comes and goes, a breath compared to eternity. Yet, what we decide to do with Jesus Christ in this tiny little sliver of time determines where we spend all of eternity. And so, um, if that's not an impetus, again, to share the gospel, I don't know what it is. And my prayer is that each and every one of us in this room has made the correct decision that we have accepted Christ so that we know where we are going to, going to spend our eternity. So, lest you think you're getting out early, the very end of this is, I must end every time I do this with a very fun little, I hope it's a fun exercise, you may not like it. Hang on, let me pull this up. What now? Oh, yeah, you got it. Uh, but now I, I may have some technical difficulties, so I need to see if I can do this real quick. Hang on. If I know how to get a Word document on here, 
Um, I made it just having to read it to you, which is not as much fun, but that's okay. I'll do it because um, I want to get y'all out of here. Okay, so this is the Highway of Life final exam. And I told my kids about this. They're like, you're so mean. I'm like, trust me. This is not, class participation is welcome and everyone pretty much gets 100. So, okay, number one, God's original perfect plan for marriage and the family unit began with which of the following two individuals? Adam and Steve, Adam and Eve, Ward and June. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Oh, y'all are just on a roll. Uh, which, of, which two of God's Old Testament servants were translated up into heaven without experiencing physical death? David and Goliath? Mary and Martha, Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah. Um, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights while Noah, his family, and the animals were safely on the ark. How long did they actually stay in the ark before the rain stopped and the waters receded? Okay, listen to your options. 100 years, just over one year. I think they're still in the ark. <laughs> over one year. One year, very good, very good. And in which Old Testament covenant did God promise a land, a nation, and a blessing? The Abrahamic covenant, the Salic covenant, or the Arabic covenant? Abraham. Abrahamic, yeah. Which of the 12 tribes of Israel did not receive a portion of the promised land, and why? Okay, so listen up. The tribe of Levi, because it was the priestly tribe. The tribe of Reuben, because they were very greedy. Or the tribe of Benjamin because they were terrible gardeners. Levi. Levi, they were the priests. Okay. After being allowed to view the promised land, Moses died and was buried by whom? Israel's finest morticians, King Tut, or God? God. God. Oh, y'all are just wrong here. God gave careful instructions on the construction of two places of worship for the Jews in the Old Testament. First was a temporary structure in the wilderness. The second was a permanent building. Which of the following correctly identifies these? and their primary contractors. So Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple, Joseph's synagogue, and Boaz's mosque are the Wake Chapel Sanctuary and Family Life Center. That would be number one, Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple. The first three kings of Israel each reigned for 40 years. Which of the following list them in order of their reign? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter, James, and John, or Saul, David, and Solomon? Saul, David, and Solomon. Very good. Uh, David, often remembered for his sin with Bathsheba, was also called what in the Bible? The harpist to be envied, the professional giant slayer, or a man after God's own heart. Very good. Almost done. In 931 B.C., the nation Israel split into two separate nations, Israel and Judah. Which of the following contributed to the split? Arguments between tribes regarding their choice for a national anthem. Uh, King Solomon's taking of over a thousand wives and concubines, most of whom worship pagan, go pagan gods, or lack of agreement on which tribe was God's favorite. It's the women. Yeah, so like the, you know, wives and concubines. <clears throat> well, okay, this is my favorite question in the whole thing. What were the silent years? A, a 400-year period of time between the Old and New Testament when no message from God was recorded in Scripture. Uh, filmmaking in America in the early 1900s, or the brief period of time following Adam's creation, but before Eve was formed. Get it? The silent years? <laughs> yeah, so that would be the 400 years between Old and New Testament. Uh, what? No, okay, just like a few more. Real quick. Uh, during Jesus' earthly ministry, I should have been a comedian. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he promised the disciples that someone would come after he left them. Who is this promised one? 
that would convict the world of sin, comfort and encourage the saints, and glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit, Darth Vader, or the ghost of Christmas past? <laughs> Alrighty, we're going to do the last three here. How is the rapture of the church not described? The rapture, rapture, not described. Meeting the Lord in the air, announced five years in advance by skywriters, or the dead in Christ will rise first. So which is it not described as? So, the skywriters. Right, right, right. I read that. I was like, whoa, did I write that wrong? Uh, okay, like two more. In the Antichrist, empowered by Satan, will be the chief figure during the seven-year period of judgment known as what? The Great Tribulation, the Time of Unparalleled Darkness, or the Period of Testing. So what is it mostly? The Great Tribulation. And let's do one last one. After the Millennial Kingdom, eternity with God will begin. How long will eternity last? A thousand years. A hundred thousand years. Forever and ever and ever. There you go. Very good. Y'all get a hundred. See, y'all learned so much these past three months. Just too good. Oh, my goodness. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Thank you.